I get emails when they work on their trees. And to see people work on their trees a year later after I've done it, I feel like I, I like I made it. I feel like with what I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I'm forever rich. You're listening to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast, the only leadership podcast run by undergraduate students dedicated to helping undergraduate students lead in diverse fields. From people in diplomacy to entertainment, from CEOs to student leaders, we feature people from all walks of life. It's all part of the mission. Here at the Piscina Leadership Institute, we make leaders better. Hello, and welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. My name is Kaida Jesus, and I'll be your host. Today, I'm talking to Walt Way, spoken word artist, poet, producer, songwriter, and founder of the Brister English Project, helping American descendants of slavery reconnect with their ancestry. He is also the mind behind poetry anthology, Hidden Fears, and Forgotten Courage. Walt, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I've been doing a lot of research on the Brister English Project, and I know how it started, and I know you started by tracing down your lineage, you were able to get to your grandma, but I don't think I ever found out what made you so curious. So where did your curiosity about your family line start, and why was this so important to you? Around 2011, my dad was diagnosed with cancer, and I didn't know too much about that side of the family. Like I met him one time going down to Florida, but I figured there was something more about it. One day I got on Ancestry. I've been in the research my, my entire life. I always loved history. That's been my thing. I asked my mom for like, like the first time, what's her grandfather's name and what was his father's name? And when she told me, that kind of just sparked a little interest. And then I found out the family weren't old, wasn't always in Florida. They actually came from Alabama. And that just led me down this, this 10 to 11-year like rabbit hole. Hearing that history is just so important to you has always been, why is it so important to you? I just love learning. I always learned to love, I love learning about new things. Just I, I don't know, just history always stood out to me. I think one big thing that kind of hooked me was my seventh grade teacher, Mr. Johnson. The way he taught history and what he taught about, it wasn't just the, the standard thing. So I learned so much from him. Same man who taught me how to tie, tie taught me about every single war that happened and, and how people moved. And it's always sparked with me. What made your seventh grade history teacher so different from A, your other seventh grade teachers, or B, other history teachers in general? He was a black man. That was my first Black history teacher. He became a role model more so than just a teacher. Like I mentioned, he was the man who taught me how to tie a tie. I still tie the Windsor not just like how he taught me 20 years later. So it was that. And he he cared about the about the students. He also was the one that kind of like got me into poetry that made me want to dive deeper into poetry. So he was just this wonderful figure in my life at the time. I didn't think that it was your history teacher or anyone history related that got you into poetry. I thought these were separate topics. Can you talk more about how that happened? He used to have us memorize poems from Maya Angelou, Langston Hughes, just all these poets. And we have to come up and read it in front of the class. And we get like a point system. So whenever you feel like you're ready to read poetry, you can come up, you can read it. And he'll give you like these kind of like a point system. And that just made me fall in love with it from reading like so many books. He inspired us to do it. And so I just fell in love with poetry more and more. And eventually just, it just, just kept taking off with it. Reading over the blurbs of your book and like promotional material, you combine like free verse, ballads, haikus and stuff. But you also just mentioned Langston Hughes and you mentioned Maya Angelou. And I'd love to know, like, who are your inspirations when you write poetry? Do you think you have any places of inspiration for people that you think have influenced your poetry the most? In terms of other poets, Rudy Francisco, oh, he's 
my favorite. I can't say possibly my favorite. He is my favorite poet. My wife just got me like his sign poem. I used to be a love poet. But yeah, Rudy Francis, the way that he structures his poems, his cadence when he reads his poems, and him not settling at a certain thing of like, this is what I'm going to do. And this is how I, he just keeps evolving with his work. And it just, it gets better and better. And that just inspires me to just keep getting better and better. Structure and cadence. I feel like when I got taught poetry in high school, cadence was there. Structure, it just feels like you're supposed to write everything out and it just magically comes out. I want to know, like, what is your process when you make poetry? Messy. It is. (laughs) Sometimes it is all over the place. Some poems I start with the middle. If I feel something, I'll try to write it. I'll write it down. And then I'll try to branch off from there. It's almost like planting a seed. Like I'm going to have, you know, roots going down. I'm going to have something coming from the top, sprouting from the top. So if I'm feeling something, I use poetry and writing as an outlet. So if I'm feeling something, it's one best way to kind of explore those feelings and then get those feelings out and don't have them bottled all up inside. I turn it into poetry. I do prose writing and I Mm -hmm. wrote a little bit of poetry and I have just started learning how to edit poems because as I just said, you get taught about poetry. It's like, oh, it's like the author just magically had it come in. How do you edit a poem? Oh, goodness gracious. So when I edit my editing process, I, I'm learning not to be a perfectionist so I can get stuff out. But for me, depends on the piece. If I have a certain kind of, 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 of cadence of, or a flow with a piece, how I would sometimes minimize words, find uh, um, things, synonyms to, to maybe replace it. Um, how, else can I, how else can I say this? What, what reaction I want from the crowd. And that's how I'll kind of edit a piece down. Because sometimes I'll write something and it just be long. And so I'm like, I have to break this down into something that's palatable for folks. I want to take it back to the English project. And I mentioned mm-hmm. a lot earlier that when you started to trace back your lineage, you got to your grandmother and then the line basically went cold. And I want to know, because I think a lot of people don't really know how to fathom this, what sort of roadblocks are there when it comes to finding out your family lineage? Oh, there's so many. First of all, I'd say one big thing is always talk to your family if you can. But like I said, the, the, the trail went cold around my grandmother. I didn't want to pry too much. She is 100 years old. She's still with us today. She's seen some things. I didn't want to you know, kind of trigger any kind of thing with her. So roadblocks would be family moving, splitting up marriages. When it comes to everybody, 1890, where the the census was burned. So it went from a few billion names to I think 60s, a little bit over 60 something hundred. 1870 wall for African-Americans, that is a, uh, for black people is, that's the main roadblock that we run into just because right before that we get right into slavery. So can you take me to the process of like how you do it? Like walk me through how that goes. So with the Bristol English Project, normally I'll get the information from the person I'm working with. I start off with them, their parents, and their grandparents. My main goal is trying to get around 1950, 1940, just to get to population census, more city directories, and just anything about the family. Could have been newspapers, war, anything I can gather information. Normally, I can try to piece together things and I can find their great-grandparents. And that's when things kind of get a little tricky, especially with, again, with Black people where our names would be misspelled, ages would be wrong, relationships to household may be off. Like an example is like my grandmother, 
told me I was looking at, I thought, well, it was her aunt. And I'm like, wow, her aunt had like seven kids in, in 10 years. I'm like, oh my goodness. My grandma told me, she's like, no, their parents passed away. And that was her aunt Blanche and her aunt Blanche adopted them. But according to the census, that was just the sons and daughters to the head of household. When I'm, when I'm going through the process, I always ask the people, you know, hey, do, you, do these names sound familiar? Um, you might ask your family about this just so I can have accuracy in what I'm doing. And then once I get back further around 1870, I always ask the people, hey, before this is slavery, I don't know if you'll like me to check on it. And then I'll start I'll start looking through slave schedules, slave ship manifests, deeds of sale, bills of sale, all kinds of stuff. You mentioned that there's kind of like murky waters when it comes to making sure that the information is accurate. It's like a so it seems to me like it's a combination of asking people what they know, like, but how do you make your final judgment on if it's actually the same person when you see two conflicting informations on documents? One thing I'll, I'll look out for is who's living with them, who's their family, who's the, the family around them. My grandpa Robert is a great example. He was born in 1846. He passed away in 1951. And him being born during that time in slavery, he didn't know his age. And you can tell that through records. But what stayed the same was his kids, his wife, where he worked at, the farm that was in the family. All that stayed the same, even though his age looked different every 10 years. So like I said, I try to get as much information as possible about that person, what they look like, if I can get anything about newspapers on them, again, if they fought in any wars, who's next to Ken on those, you know, those World War II docs or war or draft cards. I just gather as much information before I say, yes, this is this person and I continue going on. We've mentioned that you went through this process with yourself, but I want to know why you decided to make this into a full-blown project and find other people's genealogies? Number one, it's, it's so hard for, for Black Americans to find certain things. And everybody wasn't blessed with, with going through the knowledge that I have, uh, going through the stuff that I have. So I wanted to make it accessible for everybody who, who happens to be a descendant of, of slavery. I don't think we should have to pay for it just because of what happened. And genealogy is expensive. So I just wanted to be able to share my gift with, with my community. Hopefully this becomes something, something way bigger. The wording that you used on the website, you said the project would be healing. And I think for a few people, that concept is a little bit foreign. Like they don't understand how figuring out their family is why that's so important. So I'd like to know why it's important to you and how you've benefited from it. It might sound strange. I feel more connected to my family, to, to know who my family is, to see what they've been through, to, to hear these stories. I think one thing that that really got to me is when I find photos and I say it's healing. Like I found a photo of my uh, third grade grand aunt Rebecca McKibben and she has hands like mine's and my mother's like exact looks just like mine's, my mother's and my grandma's. So to see that that's a feeling to say, Hey, we're here in history. You know, Hey, we've been here for a long time. We're not lost. We're not nothing. We have culture, we have family. And it's a healing thing just because when I talk to most people, they just think that we were we were slaves and then Jim Crow happened and that was it. And then there's nothing that nothing good ever. We were never happy. And so I, I just wanted to, to connect that with people. And it, it's a healing. I feel like it's a, it's a healing feeling. If I'm getting what you're saying. It's like I'm Asian. So prints are a lot different. And yeah. I'm understanding how race has impacted me. And it seems like 
through the poems that you write and through the Bristol English Project, you've been making peace of sort of that racial trauma that you've experienced. And I want to know how that happens or how that has been working for you. It's kind of like a good outlet. It's not so much as making like peace with it, but it's, I don't have to bite my tongue uh, anymore. I, this this is my art. This is my this is my space. I can say what I want. I can I can feel in this space, and so I don't keep it in anymore. I lived for a few years in what was considered a sundown town here, and the stuff that I that I heard and the stuff that I couldn't say and the way that I had to move, I kept a lot bottled up. And so finally, you know, I'm back home in my 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 city, and I can talk about it. It's, it's free and I don't have to feel some kind of way if I make somebody upset with telling my truths, with telling my experiences, because these, these experiences shape who I am. What do you hope that people get out of your poetry? That we're human, that I'm human, that we have feelings, as, a, as especially I, I, I want men, especially Black men to listen, like we have feelings, it's okay to express these feelings. It's okay to for everybody to just express who they are i tell a lot in my book about a lot of personal experiences so that, that's my thing i just want people to know that it's it's okay to feel it's okay to be you it's okay to it's okay to cry sometimes that's 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 the main thing it's okay to cry something that i like sometimes wrap my head around when you make really vulnerable art like you're on on some level you're monetizing like what makes you upset and i want to know like if there's any negative effects and how you take care of yourself or if it's just like all good, like, is it just like, is it only positive when you put out vulnerable pieces of it about yourself or do you have to take care of yourself essentially? You got to take care of yourself. Definitely. Everybody's not going to like what you put out. A couple of years ago, I put out a video of a poem involving the police and everything. I was not stopped walking. I was followed a street over in my neighborhood because uh, my neighborhood, I'm one of the few black people over here. and so. I was followed. I ended up messing up my foot. I went home and I wrote out the piece. I ended up putting it. I put it out there. It did numbers online. And there were a lot of angry people who didn't look like me and telling me all kinds of bad stuff and how um, I'm this and how, how Black lives don't matter and how just all these horrible things. And I'm like, if I sat there and just soaked all that in and, and took it to heart and did not do anything, no, no kind of self-care, I'll be just damaging myself. So I just I just make sure to take care of myself while I'm doing whatever I'm doing. Yeah, I, it's funny that you mentioned TikTok because I think like that is exactly where I found you. And TikTok is like probably most famously a pretty toxic place. Do you like turn off comments? Do you just like stay away from it? Do you just like do you even read comments at all? How do you respond to feedback? It, it depends on the feedback. So if it's like a, a troll, just some regular troll i can I, I can block them i normally block people if you just say something just off the walls i'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna block you if you if you say something try to say something harmful especially harmful people in my comments like i feel as if i'm funny I, we, we we can you want to make jokes we can do the, the joke thing we can go back and forth we can do whatever i don't take it to heart i don't take anything personal just because these people don't know me that's one thing i learned going through this stuff they don't they don't know me these faceless, toxic people that's out there. So I just, I never turn off comments. That's one thing I don't do. If anybody's like I said, anybody says something, I'll delete a comment. 
especially if it's harmful to people that's going to see it, yeah, I'm, I'm going to delete it. I'm not going to delete it, block the person. They'll never know I even did it. <laughs> so I just make sure that my community is good. I have a good community over there that I try to maintain. I have posted videos on TikTok before and I like have a fraction of the amount of followers that you have, but still it seems like even one like nasty comment because TikTok gives you like all the notifications for <laughs> the comments and like having, I, I last I checked, it was it a hundred thousand that you're at? hundred, yeah. Yeah. So it's like a lot coming in at once. Like how do you not let every individual negative thing harm me? Because sometimes for me, it's like I see one and like I'm thrown off. <sighs> It it depends. It depends on what I see. If it's the gray user bunch of numbers, I, yeah, you're blocked. I don't I don't care anything about what you say. Like like you like yeah, you remind me of a bot. So when it's certain people, there's like I've been getting a lot of certain type of comments lately. One thing I learned from a mutual is how to elevate the value of a comment. So if somebody does say something hateful. I can take that and I can turn it into an educational moment, not for them. I'm not going to talk to them. I'm trying to talk around them so that my audience can hear it, so that, that people can share it, that people can get it. And once people see that comment, it's just, <laughs> my, my followers, will, <laughs> they love me. I'm going to just say it like that. <laughs> they, they love me. So <laughs> I don't worry too much. I've talked on this podcast before about setting boundaries with people that say hateful stuff. And usually when I talk about it, it's between people that you know directly and knowing when it's not worth it explaining things to people that you know IRL. But when you're doing it, you're doing a lot of this online. And I want to know, like, when do you decide it's worth it to make content on a specific hate comment? So I got, I'm not going to, I have a lot um, saved. <laughs> <laughs> Just like if I, if I want to talk about a certain subject, if there's a, a certain topic going around, especially revolving around history or genealogy, if somebody says something off the wall and there's something I may want to talk about, because I have a lot of stuff I want to talk about, like, do I just want to make a random video? And then somebody will say something stupid. I'm like, oh, here it is. This leads to this and that. So if I can gain something from it, if I can gain people listening to what I'm saying and putting out some something good, turn that, that negative into something positive for a bunch of people, that's when I find it's worth it. Outside of that, I get called all kinds of stuff. I just, it's delete and block. Mm -hmm. It's delete and block for me. You're in a lot of different disciplines. You do spoken word, you do TikTok, you do like history. And in a lot of these things, like there's no linear path to say that like, oh, I've made it. What does making it, what does that mean to you? I feel like with what I'm doing with the Bristol English Project, someone told me, and I, I, I kind of took it to heart. They told me that if I stop tomorrow, I've done enough. To see like the people I touched and people indirectly and directly, if people use the resources that I have or actually worked with me one-on-one, -on -one, just just to see the change, to, to see the reactions, to hear, you know, just to hear how healing the experience was. And, and with the Bristol English Project, I see, because everybody's, most people I work with directly, trees are on my account uh, for the Bristol English Project. So they have ancestry as long as I have ancestry. They don't have to pay for it. I get emails when they work on their trees. And to see people work on their trees a year later after I've done it, I feel like I, I like I made it. I feel like with what I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I'm forever rich. People that want to get into genealogy in general, like how do you get into it? Taking a step. There's, there's websites out there like Ancestry that you could pay for or websites such as Family Search, which is free. 
if you're interested, my my thing I tell everybody is first talk to your family. Get as much information as you can. Talk to your, not just your parents, talk to your aunts, your uncles, your cousins. Everybody has stories about somebody. So get as much information as possible. And then choose one of these websites and just start. I guarantee you there's most likely just a family member that's out there that's doing the same thing that you're doing. I'd like to know, because like genealogy and finding out like people, that's a lot of information. What information interests you the most and what are you looking for? Stories. And a lot of records tell stories, but like actual stories, photographs I look for, I mean, anything that can describe how somebody looked. May it be a draft card, may it be a hospital record, may it be something. If I can tell people, hey, you're, you're built just like your third great grandmother. Exactly. Y'all the same height, same weight, everything. It's like she looks just like you. I just worked with somebody where it was almost scary how much they look like their answer. It looked like somebody copy and pasted like like they face throughout history. I look for anything. A name means so much to people just to learn a whole different last name. I, I never knew about the McKibbins. I'm a McKibben. I didn't know that. I'm not percent Scottish. <laughs> so like to learn to to know that, to to find that out, to find stuff like that. Just anything. It's just it means so much to us. So I wanna thank you again for coming on the show. I do have one last question for you, and that is if you had to tell your seventh grade self one thing, what would it be? It's gonna be all right. <laughs> it's gonna be all right. I think I'll tell my, my seventh grade self that. Seventh grade me just faced, I think, my 12th surgery, 11th and 12th surgery. So I was, let them know it's all right. We're going to make it. That's one thing. We're going to make it. On behalf of everyone at the Posita Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank the podcast team, 89.5 FM WSOU, for allowing us to use their facilities and you for listening. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership on Instagram at Bacino Leaders and on Twitter at SHU Leadership. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better.